Hi, everybody, and much thanks again for tuning in to Season 3, Episode Number 2. I'm really thrilled and honored to have on today's episode an upcoming chat with the incredibly talented songwriter, singer, multi-instrumentalist, and all-round music genius, Kevin Hearn. Before I do a brief intro about his illustrious career so far and our chat will follow, here's a bit of a sampling from his newest solo recording just released called Dreaming of the 80s. Kevin, who was born in Grimsby, Ontario, has now been a member of the Canadian Hall of Fame inductees Bare Naked Ladies since joining them in 1995, and he has worked with some of the world's best musicians and artists such as Neil Young, Tanya Tagak, Elvis Costello, Tom Jones, and for his last six years, Kevin was music director and keyboardist for Lou Reed, who was one of his musical heroes. Kevin also had a deep friendship with Gord Downey as he worked closely with Gord on his last album, Secret Path, and his final concert at Massey Hall. Kevin, being a creative tornado, has also recorded some innovative and imaginative solo albums over the years, and a brand new one is just being released February 17th called Dreaming of the 80s. The new album features violinist Hugh Marsh, along with Carol Pope, Fernando Saunders from Lou Reed's band, trumpeter Michael Ray from the Sun Ra Orchestra, and esteemed opera singer Michael Colvin. Kevin has truly made the world a better place with his presence through music and his generosity. And once again, I'm honored to have him on the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Good to see you, Tom. You know, I think we actually saw each other last uh, 100 years ago. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's actually been 32. I counted it the other day. I started looking at some of the albums, and it's been 32 years since the uh, boogasm, crazy egg um, time period where, at that time, you were a very young, talented keyboardist and member of the band Look People. Yes. So, um, of course, I was a huge fan, and so I, I did end up releasing two albums on my hypnotic label. So now looking back, I hope you have some fond memories of that that time period. I do. I remember your studio down at uh, Spadina and Adelaide, right? Yeah, that's right. Right on the top floor. I had the best view of the city. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a cool place. And uh, I, I always enjoyed making music there. Yeah. And you were very supportive of the band. Well, I tried my best in those days, <laughs> which was hard because you guys weren't exactly normal. <laughs> I, I say that in the, the highest complimentary way, actually. Yeah, well, it, it made you all the more special because you were you saw through all of that and saw that there was uh, something interesting there, you know? It, 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 for sure. Well, you know, uh, um, I always thought about uh, how it must have felt for you and the band because there must have been such a a cool musical playground for you guys just to to experiment. Um, and, and let's face it, you guys at that time were really innovative and ahead of your time, I think. Thank you. And uh, you're, you've also uh, managed to have uh, a really long-lasting musical friendships with uh, with some of the players. I noticed that they, they're on your solo albums, and how wonderful is that? Oh, it's great. Also, there was a fellow who worked at your studio named Mark Stewart. Mm-hmm. 
and he was an engineer, but he became sort of our right-hand man. He was our sound man, and he drove the van when we went on tours. Yeah. You know? So that was that was a cool thing from that that time as well. For sure. And yeah, when, when the Look people eventually disbanded, I, I started working with great Bob Scott on drums and Chris Gartner on bass. And uh, they we were called Thin Buckle, and we made a few records together. And Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, so yeah, so just a couple of more things about the uh, look people. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, we actually came close to getting a U.S. deal. <laughs> we had Atlantic Records. Uh, like, do you remember remember that? It's a bit vague for me, but I kind of remember the showcase. And I th was it New York City or was it in Toronto? I, I'm trying to remember because I, I did we do the jaunt to New York City because I remember doing the showcase and I think great Bob did a drum solo and then pulled his pants down or something at the end or maybe maybe before the solo and I, I remember the A and R guy kind of looking at me going I, I don't get this <laughs> so thanks but no thanks but uh, I know we came close I think it was Atlantic Records and I think it was Greg Coleman who ended up being a big deal. And still, still probably is. Yeah, I think we did one in New York. We also did one at X-Rays, or what was that that venue called? Oh, Ultrasound, maybe? Ultrasound, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. So that is true. So, yeah, um, we did come close. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what my other funniest memory is before we go on from Look People, because it, it, it just it was such a fun time for all of us, uh, is I just looked at the Lowrider video. Oh, man. And I, I can't believe uh, you guys showing up there. And uh, at the start of the, the, the video, you guys are actually... Uh, sitting on three-wheeler kids' tricycles and, you know, starting to bump into each other after that and bumper cars and, you know, Great Bob looks like he's 10 years old, which maybe he still does. <laughs> so, and the video, I mean, it's just super cool I and mean, what fun stuff, you know, we were, we were doing together. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of those, uh, of those days. And you're, you're right. The, the albums didn't uh, connect on a large, you know, level as far as, you know, um, charting, you know, doing big numbers or anything. But when I put the records out, I'm still really proud of them. So anyway, um, thanks for being part of that. And, uh, you know, that was a huge part of my life too. Well, likewise. Thank you. So before we go on to your wonderful solo work over the years, um, let's just chat a bit about your Bare Naked Ladies career. And for those people who don't know, how did the uh, Bare Naked Ladies opportunity present itself uh, to you exactly? Because uh, I know there's a, a story behind that, too, because you, you, you obviously had some um, serious health issues, uh, I think, after you joined and been there for a while. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe just uh, delve into that a bit for us. Sure. Well, I, I think the Look people broke up around 1992. Uh, and the, you know, we when we were doing our last gigs, we would often run into the bare naked ladies who were still, you know, touring in a van. Yep. With, uh, just one crew guy. So they were still kind of on their way up. And uh, I remember once the Look people ended, I, I just kept working with people I connected with. Like I was a regular member of the Rio Statics band. Mm -hmm. I was working with a group called Corky and the Juice Pigs. Who, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were great too. And uh, the Bare Naked Ladies were fans of both of those groups and would come to see the shows. And I think through doing so, sort of became familiar with who I was. And uh, Jim Cregan's brother was in the band at the time. 
but he announced that he was leaving. And I ran into Tyler Stewart, the drummer at the Horseshoe Tavern. And he said, Kevin, this is weird that I've run into you because we were talking about you today. And I said, why were you talking about me? And he said, well, Andy Cregan's leaving and we're hoping you could do a two month tour with us in the summer. And uh, oh. yeah, we don't want to do that. That was per perfect timing for you too. As you just said, you just look people had just broken up. So you just sort of stepped right into that opportunity. Yeah. And I was still working day jobs, you know, trying to make ends meet. And yeah, the money was pretty tight those days Yeah, <laughs> for, for all of us. <laughs> so then segue from that, I mean, you, you joined, you started doing the tour and then was your health at that point an issue or did that happen later for you? Well, at that time, you know, the band was a household name in Canada, but we were still playing clubs in the USA and we were down there maybe seven months out of the year. Um, for a few years, just building, building uh, relationships with radio and with the record company, which was Reprise Records. And uh, so the first thing I did with them was a live record called uh, Rock Spectacle, which was re recorded in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that that record sort of lit uh lit the kindling so to speak and it was sort of a perfect storm for the next record which was a record called stunt which we were recording in austin texas at a studio that willie nelson owned so it was very exciting times but at that time as when i started feeling symptoms i didn't know what was going on but okay lo loss of appetite and uh losing weight and coughing and i was you know in pain under the piano between takes and that's unreal yeah and that's uh Eventually, I had to go home, and the doctor said, you're lucky you made it home. And um, so I, I was diagnosed with leukemia, had to pack a bag and check into Princess Margaret Hospital, which is the cancer hospital here in Toronto, not knowing if I would ever check out. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, yeah, while I was in the hospital having my transplant, the stunt record and the song One Week went to number one on the Billboard charts. So it was a surreal feeling to, to look at that and be be sitting there in a bed, not knowing if you're going to get out. Exactly. Well, um, so going going through your illness, uh, Kevin, and when you managed to get healthy again, how did that shape and reflect your, your attitude towards continuing your life and musical journey as, um, you know, most of us at some point don't realize that life can change on a dime? Yeah. And then it hits you. And then it hits <laughs> you. Expect it. Yeah. You know, I I'd worked all my life, as you know. You saw I was working to make a living in music, and uh, uh, you know, finally that was happening. And all of a sudden, the rug was pulled out from underneath me. But my life, I loved my life, and that was an incentive to get better. You know, okay. so I want to get back to my life. I'm going to fight for it. It's worth fighting for. Well, that that's that's like what I call a role model there, and and you certainly are for those people that uh, have had serious illnesses. Look at you today. <laughs> you know, you've uh, I don't know. It's been I don't know what plus two two decades. I think now you've been in the band and you've had a successful solo career, and uh, you know that's just a wonderful wonderful narrative story here for everybody to hear. So I'm going to go to your. Um, Solo albums now, since uh, everybody knows about the Bare Naked Ladies, and we, you know, we might touch on them again. But you released your first one, I think, in 2011, 
And when I was online, I was trying to count up how many there are, but some of them are with thin buckle and some of them on your own. So what's the official word there? How many are yours and how many are, or do you count them all as solo albums? I count them all as solo albums. <laughs> okay. I have to fix that actually. There's, there shouldn't really be a separation. It's just, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Um, so before we get to your wonderful new solo album, which I just heard, um, and it's wonderful. Well, so, um, what have been your inspirations when composing solo music on your own? Is it, you know, I've noticed some moody nature oriented artwork on the cover. So is nature a a big source for you to, you know, want to sit at a piano or, or, you know, pick up the guitar? Is it staring out the window at the lake or um, things like that? Uh, I'm very inspired by nature, for sure. Uh, very inspired by the, the the mystery and the sense of wonder of the world and celebrating that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the the darkness of it, you know. And, um, and there's there's plenty of that out there if you look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there can be beauty in that too, you know. So there can be. So does that um, bring into the? Um, the world of art also that seems to resonate a lot for you in your creativity you know i just i even see art in in your in your rooms there and i see you know all your your artwork and that is is really looks like well thought out so how much of of that is is an influence for you like paintings sculptures etc it all inspires me i i love going to you know the and the art gallery in whatever city we happen to be in and uh, feeling a sense of connection with with artists mm-hmm. that I may or may not know yet. Sure. With imagining them in their own little studio expressing themselves and, you know, it's right. It's, it's a cool thing to to connect with. You're absorbing their feelings sort of and then, you know, channeling it out through your own, uh, through your fingertips, uh, whether it's guitar or piano. Exactly. Uh, and how about other cultures and all the travel you've done? How, how much does that influence your your musical stylistic compositions oh other places really inspire me like i was as you said i was just in indonesia Mm -hmm. and snorkeling every day and seeing the healthy coral and all the different weird looking fish it was just like ah so there might be a song a fish song coming up soon (laughs) okay well that would be cool (laughs) actually we had a big fight in Look People once because James B. had written a song called Underwater Hurl, which was <laughs> okay. a, Sounds a like psychedelic him. song about vomiting underwater. And <laughs> Clay Tyson wasn't having it. He just <laughs> I think it must have, uh, it almost would have fit with uh, the way you guys were writing in those days. Um, yeah, of course. Now, I also noticed on your uh, Days of Frames album, you have a co-write with Lou Reed. Yes, yeah, the song Floating. Yeah, I just checked it out the other day, and uh, wow, it has some really great gallows humor in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he must have had a really profound influence on you. Yeah, he was my hero all my life, you know. Uh, I heard Walk on the Wild Side when I was uh, nine years old on a neighbor's radio, and it just cut through cut through to me. I was like, what is this? I got to find out what this is, and... I was listening for the DJ to hear what it was after the song finished. And I went to my older sister, Mary Pat, and asked her if she'd ever heard of a guy named Lou Reed. And she actually had the Transformer record. Mm -hmm. And I still have that copy of it in my collection. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, there's a there's a beautiful solo piano piece also on the There and Then album. Is that is and it's called Lou. Is that about him, yeah. or is that for him? Sort of as far as uh, uh, you expressing yourself with uh, it was a beautiful solo piece, a piano piece. Yeah, it's a uh, nice way to honor somebody. Yeah, his 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 uh, spirit is never far from me. You know, I think of him every day, and I miss him. Yeah, for sure. You know, I didn't on that record that I did with Mark Howard. It's all piano improv. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on two songs I vocalized, but on that one I just sang ooh like ooh. Yeah, draw the reverb. No, it was really moving. Yeah, but I, when it came to trying to put a title to it, I thought, oh, it almost sounds like Lou, so I'm going to call it Lou. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. So let's get into the new album now. So uh, I actually just listened to it um, a couple of mornings ago, and I was uh, enjoying my coffee, actually, we're listening to it, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and it's hard to find those kind of records where <laughs> you can put something on when you're having coffee. Anyway, I loved it, and your song selection for me was right on. Thank you. Now, the cover arrangements also have that unique Kevin Stamp on it um so uh, how, how do you explain that and um you know there's actually a fun track on there too that reminded me of the look people which is the opera song track <laughs> i thought it was yeah. listening to a look people <laughs> track so uh how do you do that kevin stamp on everything what what is it uh, i don't know it's just the way i interpret those songs and uh, how they resonate with me and the way I can uh, convey the feeling they give me, given the the parameters I have with my own abilities. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try not to recreate what they're doing because they, whoever did that song first, did it their way. And I just try to do it my way and um, convey what the lyrics might mean to me. Like the song called Heaven by Psychedelic Furs. Sure. I'm, I'm very familiar with it. I made it a little more dreamy and gentle. You did. Yeah. Um, so what was your inspiration this time around for this solo album? And it's called Dreaming of the 80s, by the way, for, for those people listening. I think if I rem- remember correctly, I just read your uh, little bit of information about the album. Uh, Foco Island seemed to have a major impact on you. Can you go deeper on that? Uh, sure. I was invited. Uh, do you know what Fogo Island in is? Uh, well, all I know is it's off the East Coast and it's supposed to be spectacular in every which way. <laughs> and yeah, and it's kind, of, kind of expensive to go there for, for, for a solo trip. But uh, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the hotel rooms there are like 500 bucks a night or something or maybe more, <laughs> maybe a thousand. <laughs> Who knows? I think the closet might be 500 <laughs> Probably. <bucks a> night. <laughs> yeah. So go deeper there. How, how did you end up there? Were you do, playing a gig or something or? Uh, actually, there's a lady there um, who was helping manage the place named Melanie Coates, and she she uh, was from the Look People universe as well. And uh, oh. she invited me to perform for their New Year's Eve event. And I asked if Hugh Marsh could come with me. Mm-hmm. And so we traveled out there. That's a whole other story. It took us, I think, 56 hours to get from <laughs> Toronto. To <laughs> well, that's another story. Yeah, yeah. I don't have time for that long one right now, but uh, <laughs> I can imagine it was torturous. Yeah, but we arrived right before our set. But we had peppered our set with cover songs because we knew there'd be people from all over the place and wanted to perhaps play something <laughs> that might be familiar and uh, when we got back from the trip, I, I thought, well, let's go in the studio and record those songs while they're in our system, just, you know, for the archives or whatever. Sure. And uh, we had such a nice time that 
and then the pandemic hit and we're like, well, let's just keep going and, and explore music from the eighties. And so we get together twice a week at my place and uh, tackle two songs at a time. And eventually we had 14 songs. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's you and Hugh are basically doing stripped down versions of, of these great classic songs. Yeah, some of them are totally stripped down. Just lot. We recorded everything live right behind me here in the living room, and uh, mm-hmm. and but then we we'd add people to certain songs, uh, like Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes plays on uh, on the Sun Ra medley, and my Lou Reed bandmate Fernando Saunders plays on Free Falling, and everyone was sort of locked down in their studios. So it was like, Hey, what are you doing? Nothing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's right. That's right. So uh, I have to mention, ask you about the, uh, the hypnotic um, mesmerizing Bob Marley track as well, uh, coming in from the cold, which is your new single and the video for that. Wow. It's absolutely stunning and magical. It's kind of a masterpiece of art for sure. So how did that come together with a pipe cleaner? Well, not pipe cleaner, pipe cleaner sculptures of somebody called Don Porcella. How did how did that all come together? Because it's absolutely a, a wow video in every way. Yeah, Don was someone I met on the um, when I started working with Lou Reed. I was we were record uh, rehearsing at SIR Studios in New York City. Mm-hmm. Don had a show, and I sort of stumbled upon it and loved his work so much and we became friends and when i was trying to get the cover together for this 80s record i asked don if he would make one of his pipe cleaner sculptures of a rubik's cube so it could float above my dad's head on the cover wow (laughs) yeah that's a cool idea i sent him the uh were you expecting him to say yes uh he he did say of course (laughs) (laughs) nobody says no to i noticed uh you've got some incredible people that that you've been uh, associated with over the years so (laughs) good for you man very blessed that way uh yeah so I sent him the record and he wrote and said, I love the record, but I got to say, I love this Bob Marley cover coming in from the cold and I'd love to do a video for it. And so uh, I called up my friend, Phil Harder, who is a great director and he lived in Minneapolis as well. So Hugh and I and my brother, Sean, who's a lighting director, mm-hmm. we all went to Minneapolis and spent a whole day shooting in a studio with all of Don's sculptures and, uh, I really love the what we what we came up with. Yeah, as I said, I think it's a masterpiece of art. Um, so congratulations on that. And the next question I had here was your Hugh Marsh is, is now become sort of one of your collaborators here, and I noticed you also did some work with him in 2019. Um, so how did you originally hook up with Hugh? And uh, that looks like a, a really great experience for you too, you know, because he's an extraordinary player. Yeah, I'm very. I love working with Hugh. We're kindred spirits. Uh, he's very smart, very adventurous musically, mm-hmm. got a lot of great stories. He's worked with a lot of great people himself. I was recording a record called Days and Frames that you mentioned at Noble Street Studios. Um, we wanted to record at Hypnotic, but it didn't exist <laughs> anymore. <laughs> oh, I'm sad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and I was recording in there and Hugh Marsh came in just to do a tour of the studio because he was looking for a place to do something. Mm-hmm. And we knew each other a little bit. And I said, oh, hey, Hugh, and do you want to play on a song? And he said, OK, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. And he came back and played on one song and it was magical 
Yeah, and he's he he ended up playing on the whole record. Yeah, don't you just love that when that magic happens? It's just like nothing beats that feeling. You know, I've had I've had that myself in my life a few times, and it's just like you know, getting the the goosebump bump, you know, or the chills up the spine. You know, no, nothing can replace that, <laughs> as I'm right. sure you're aware. Yeah. So, and it speaks to the the power of of music. You know, it does. It does. Uh, I know we're both lifers. I, I've spent my whole life in the music business too, as well as being a musician, uh, et cetera, when I started. But anyways, uh, let's go to your childhood now, because um, I'm quite fascinated. Uh, did somebody insert some musical DNA into your veins? Uh, <laughs> uh, because you're, you, you know, like I just said, you're a lifer like me. You live and, and breathe music uh, daily, maybe even every every minute. Well, when did you fall in love? When did you fall in love with music? Well, I started young, like you probably did, where my mom forced me to play piano, and I went through the that uh, whole experience too of why am I doing classical for for ten years? And then, of course, um, for me personally, when I when I realized I could actually play, and maybe I could be John Lord or Rick Wakeman. <laughs> I mean, th those were my heroes. And then, of course, uh, I, I ended up in the prog world, and probably for me, as I, I speak about myself for for. 10 seconds here. Um, General Giant was probably the one that really, you know, I, I, I wished I could have got to that level. I just loved that band. And, you know, you guys were, for me, almost similar because you were so unique in your arrangements and very innovative in that, you know, and, and musically, you guys were, were right up there, you know, right up there. That's why you liked the look people. That's right. That's that. right. That is why. Exactly. So let, enough about me. Enough about me. Let's. So, so how did you start? What, were your parents musical? Uh, you know, there was always music in my house. No one was a professional musician, but mm -hmm. my brothers and sisters all loved music and there was always music playing. And, you know, I just fell in love when I was five with the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And you had the piano lessons too, did you? And you got your, your, cause I think you went all the way to, was it grade 10? Yeah. Or yeah. 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 I just, I said to my mom, I need to I want to take piano lessons. I, I just knew that's the world I wanted to be in. Oh, you actually wanted to. So that was different for me. I was forced to, but <laughs> then I realized what a great uh, uh, situation she put, she forced me through. But so you went grade 10 and then we, I guess you just, before you hit the look people, you did a bunch of other stuff. I'm assuming between uh, what 10 and uh, 18 or 20 when you joined the look people. So we were just in bands and stuff. You know, I, I had a high school band called the Glaciers, and we made a lot of... Oh, nice name, Glaciers. <laughs> yeah. We, we made a lot of cool music uh, on four-track and eight-track tapes, and uh, I, I've currently been combing through it all and sort of fixing some of the songs up, which has been an exciting project. But I, I joined the Look People when I was in high school. Well, here's a question for you while you're on that. Do you have some mentors you, uh, that, because uh, I had a few along, along the way uh, helping navigate my path. How about you? School teachers, you know, music teachers, you know, just people pushing you to, to go, hey, go for it. Yeah, I had a piano teacher named Mr. Pengeli who expressed interest in my original ideas. He'd say, how's that idea coming along? And, you know, he'd encourage me to to pursue that, that avenue of, of expressing myself. Uh, also, uh, my cousin Harland, who was just a few years older than me, mm -hmm. we, we eventually moved in together because he wanted to go into comedy mm -hmm. and I wanted to go into music. And we were sort of both the black sheep in our families in that sense. And uh, 
we moved in together and had a mutually supportive uh, friendship, although he was making a little more money at Yuck Yucks and he would buy, um, he always ordered Swiss chalet like every night. (laughs) Right. He was helping to eat. (laughs) He knew you were starving, right? Yeah. He'd share it with me for sure. Yeah. So Harland was a mentor as well. Uh, Yeah. I think he actually ended up at hypnotic doing some, uh, some of his comedy stuff up there, I believe. I think he showed up there a few times. Yeah, that's that's cool. How about your? You know, I'll go I'll go back a little bit now to a few years ago. How about your very close friendship with Gord from the Hip? Is there anything you'd want to mention? How special uh, that moment in time was for you? He must be on your mind too. Every once in a while, he must pop up, and you know, like that was such a tragic scenario there that uh, I don't want to dwell on this. But maybe there's something you just like to share with everybody. How special that was for you. Uh, sure. Um, Gord invited me to play on his very first solo record called Coke Machine Glow. Mm-hmm. So I played on a few songs and then I, I played on a tragically hip record called We Are the Same. And we just kind of, we knew we liked each other, but we were so busy in our own worlds that we always sort of joked like, ah, oh, we got to we form a band and, you know, we and then when he was um, in his last few years, he he made that beautiful record called The Secret Path with Kevin Drew yep. and Dave Hamlin. And he wanted to bring that record to the stage and bring more awareness about uh, reconciliation and um, residential schools. And he asked me to lead the band, you know, and... Well, what an honor that was for you to be asked that. Absolute honor. And totally bittersweet kind of experience because we had a great time and we recorded right here or, you know, rehearsed right here behind me, Mm -hmm. had some wonderful times with Gord. And I'm so happy that I had that uh, honor. For sure. And of course you probably related to to his situation in a way because, you know, you you had that uh, earlier episode that uh, almost knocked you off the planet. And uh, of course, I can tell you, you feel blessed to be here every moment because I can, I can sort of hear it in the music and I can just sort of feel that vibe. So, Thanks, Tom. I think I, I could offer him some genuine uh, empathy, you know, based on my own experience. And I think he appreciated that. For sure. For sure. I, I, was, I never had the privilege of actually meeting him, but I, I'm sure he would have uh, been one of those people you call a best friend pretty quickly. Yeah, he was a cool guy. He lived up to his reputation. Yeah, awesome. So um, I'm just going to wrap up shortly. I've got a couple of, um, you know, maybe this is a bit of an odd question for you, but uh, let's see what you think. (laughs) If I were to give you a magic wand right now and you'd have three chances to wave it and change things in the way the current music biz is, what would you change? Or do you have any thoughts on that? How, How, you know, we can make things better out there? Let's start with music programming in schools. Oh, good one. Yeah. Good one. Thanks for mentioning that, where they always cut it, cutting budgets. Yeah. And let's... It's the first thing to go, isn't it? Yeah. And let's talk about, you know, uh, longer su- support for artists' growth, like the, like it used to be, you know, not just not just trying to cash in on a single. Like, what can you do for me today? You know, like, you know, this song, you know, if this song doesn't happen, then you're done. You know, yeah. I want the next person. <laughs> and the, the third thing would be like, don't just say no to a band because the drummer pulls his pants down during the, the solo. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, you know what? I actually, that's a great one because I actually think you guys, if if somebody would have signed you at that moment in time, um, I think with the advent of video, and if we would have got some of those crazy videos on and and had that, let's say, MTV exposure, uh, <laughs> who knows what could might have happened? Because you guys were entertaining as hell. Yeah. Well, again, congrats on that. Uh, longevity that you have going with the bare naked ladies and your solo career is 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 great i love all the uh music that you've put out there and uh i'm slowly getting through them all like i say you must have about uh somewhere between 10 and 20 um albums to go through so i'm working my way through them and uh thanks again for coming on i've really enjoyed our discussion thanks again for doing this kevin i really appreciate it thanks for having me great to talk to you tom My name's Tom Tremuth, and thanks again for listening. I'm so happy I could reconnect with Kevin after so many years, as I really enjoyed our chat and can't wait to see him live either playing solo concerts or with the Bare Naked Ladies. Coming up next week is a wonderful long chat I had with Colin Linden, and this was really fun as we dived into his career. We chat about his love of producing other artists, his prestigious sideman gigs with Bob Dylan and Bruce Coburn, his 25-year career as a member of Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and we also chatted about his wonderful solo career whilst living in Nashville. Till next time, bye-bye. <laughs>